joining me on another episode of paranormally speaking i'm your host neil parks enjoy the ride and now a word from our sponsor well thank you for sticking around and listening to that hot garbage from our sponsors wanted to share a awesome factoid with you about sea monsters being that sea monsters are beings from folklore believed to dwell on the sea and often imagined to be of immense size marine monsters can take any form including sea dragons, sea serpents, or multi-armed beasts. They can be slimy and scaly and are often pictured threatening ships or spouting jets of water. The definition of a monster is subjective. Further, some sea monsters may have been based on scientifically accepted creatures, such as whales and types of giant colossal squid. Why do people see sea monsters? The open ocean can be a terrifying place, miles from shore on storm-tossed seas, with nothing but water in all directions, including straight down. A sailor or a fisherman cannot help but wonder what lurks in the depths. When the oceans were still unexplored, these fears often took the form of imaginary monsters. Many sea monsters include features from living animals, A large tentacle becomes part of a monstrous sea serpent or many-armed kraken. The eyes see a fragment. The mind fills in the rest. A blend of tail tales, tall tales of that, mistaken identity, and resonate cultural symbols within. Stories of sea monsters often reveal more about the minds of the imaginers than they do about the natural world around us. It was a giant squid, 25 feet long. It was heading toward the Nautilus swimming backward very fast. We could clearly make out about 250 suckers lining the inside of its tentacles, some of which fastened onto glass panels of the lounge. The monster's mouth, a horny beak like, like a parakeet, opened and closed vertically. What a whim of nature, a bird's beak and a mollusk. Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Then there's many armed monsters. The mythical Kraken may be the largest sea monster ever imagined. Some stories described it as more than 2.5 kilometers, 1.5 miles around with arms as large as ship's masts. Perhaps based on sightings of giant squid tentacles, this multi-armed monster rarely attacked humans, preferring to stay in deep water where it feasted on fish. The chief dangers came from being too close when it surfaced or too close when it sank, as a boat could be sucked down in a whirlpool created when it submerged. It was described in Scandinavian stories dating back about 1180 AD. The kraken was said to live near Norway and Iceland. Long, flexible arms or tentacles like those of a giant squid or octopus. Limbs so large they looked like a ring of islands. It ate huge quantities of fish, which it lured with an enticing smell. Fishermen would rush over, hoping to snare a share of the kraken's catch. When a kraken surfaced, a shimmering cascade of fish might be seen tumbling down its back.
Now, moving along to the most recent sightings, currently reported specific sea monsters, water monsters, lake monsters, such as Cadboroasaurus of the Pacific Northwest, Champ of Lake Champlain, Chessie of the Chesapeake Bay, of course, Nessie of Loch Ness, Champ is Nessie's cousin, they are both described as what a Platysaurus would have looked like. And then there's Izzy of Lake Ekeda and Kiyoshoku. Then there's Ogopogo of the Okanagan Lake. There's Luska, Morguar. Then there's Ninjin, a humanoid creature sighted in the seas of North Japan. Shorelady, it's in uh, Westford's Iceland. Arfin Forjor. The seahorse, Arfin Forjor, West Yorge in Ireland, Iceland. The shell monster, Arfin Yor, West Fords, Iceland. And the merman, also in West Fords, Iceland. Creatures of H.P. Lovecraft's Chikulu mythos, including Chikulu himself, or Chihulu, however you wish to pronounce it. It's pronounced about three different ways. Creatures in such sci-fi horror films as Deep Star 6, The Rift, Deep Rising, and Deep Shock. Clover, Cyrus from Cyrus the Unsinkable Sea Serpent by Bill Peet. Fictional portrayals of the giant squid, like in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Giant octopus in It Came from Beneath the Sea. Iku Toruso. In Lanrot's Kavala, Giganto, Godzilla, Mothra, Gorgo, Manda, Kraken is depicted in Clash of the Titans, both the 1981 and 2010 versions, as well as the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. That version of the Kraken is very different from the one in Clash of the Titans. Ibira, Titanosaurus, Zigra, Moby Dick, Redosaurus, the Terrible Dogfish, Jaws, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, Sea Serpent as depicted in C.S. Lewis's novel The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Roswell, UFOs, Flying Saucers, Alien Abduction, Are We Alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Creepy creatures that call Canada home. Canada is a vast country, and there are parts of it that still remain mysterious to this day. It's not surprising that in such a huge place, legends and stories have sprung up about some pretty amazing and creepy creatures. From giant sea serpents to the famous Sasquatch, these are some of the incredible beasts that are said to call Canada home. Ogopogo in British Columbia. Canada's answer to the Loch Ness Monster and America's champ in Lake Champlain. Ogopogo sightings date back as far as the 19th century. The Ogopogo calls Lake Akinagawan in British Columbia home. It's said to be a massive sea serpent with a horse-like head. Some skeptics think sightings of Ogopogo may 
just be logs or ordinary water animals, while others are convinced they've seen the real thing. Canada is actually said to be home to a number of sea monsters, with Ogopogo being the most famous. Others include Champ in Lake Champlain, which starts in New York and Vermont, and Gassienda Thea, a dragon said to live in the Great Lakes. It especially likes Lake Ontario, apparently. Sasquatch in British Columbia. The Sasquatch is one of a number of similar creatures that have been sighted all over the world. In the U.S., they're better known by the name Bigfoot. In Nepal, people have reported seeing the Yeti or the Abominable Snowman. These creatures all share a number of features. They're usually said to be a larger than the average person's size, and they're covered in thick hair. In fact, Sasquatch is a First Nation Salish word meaning hairy man. Some people believe that these creatures are the fabled missing link in evolution between apes and humans. They're said to usually live in defense dense forests in those areas, especially in the Pacific Northwest. They're also supposed to be very shy around humans, which has led many to doubt their existence. Akhlut, the Northwest Territories. This creature looks like something straight out of Pokemon or Avatar. The Akhlut is a shape-shifting spirit from Ilt mythology. It's a spirit that can appear as an orca whale while on the water and a giant wolf whale while on land. It's said to be huge and comes onto the land from the ocean to hunt. The best way to tell if there was an anult on the loose was to look for its tracks. If there were wolf prints leading to or from the ocean, then look out. The anult's not picky about what it eats, animals or people. Whatever's unlucky enough to be around when it's hunting. Loup Garou in Quebec. Loup Garou translates pretty much directly to as werewolf, but this French-Canadian monster is a little more complicated than your average lycanthrope, someone who can transform into a wolf. There are different legends about this monster. One legend has it that you can become one if you break the tradition of Lent for seven years in a row. Another legend suggests that Loup Garou is under a spell that lasts for 101 days, and it breaks when it is passed on to another person. Unlike traditional werewolves, the Loup Garou can change into a wolf whenever it wants. Some legends say that a Loup Garou might not even turn into a wolf. They say that those affected by the curse can turn into cats, pigs, or even owls. Monster.fandom.com That's monster.fandom.com The Thing in the Swamp One of the most intriguing, not to mention chilling, encounters with a Pukwudgie is that of Bill Russo, a retired iron worker, or welder, who lives in Rainham, Massachusetts. His home was built on a knoll just a few hundred yards away from the Hockamock Swamp. For six years, Bill worked a shift from three in the afternoon until midnight. When he finally got home, it became his habit to take his 80-pound female Rottweiler German Shepherd mix, Samantha, for a late-night walk to get a little exercise and just relax. They walked every single night, not to mention what time of the year it was. And then everything changed one night. 
On one night in 1995, Bill and Sam went out on their nightly walk at about one in the morning. Usually, the two friends walked on the sidewalks towards the center of town and avoided the swamps. That particular night, however, the two changed their routine up a little and cut through his backyard and headed into the deep woods next to the swamps toward an old dam that had once provided much-needed water for an early ironworks. Sammy pulled along with Bill into an area that he calls the High Trees. And when they had gone about a half a mile, they came to a break where a road cut through the swamp. At this point, Samantha began acting up, pulling hard on her leash and looking up at Bill. She trembled and her hair stood on end and looked at her master for protection. Bill asked her, What's wrong, Samantha? I don't see anything. It's okay, baby. We'll go home now. Come on. He tugged on her leash, but she wouldn't move an inch. She was afraid of something, and according to Bill, Sam was not a dog that frightened easily. She just cried and quivered. It was clear that something in the darkness had terrified this poor dog. It wasn't long before Bill began to hear the thing that was frightening his beloved dog. It was faint at first, but it was unmistakable. An eerie voice was calling through the night air, saying, Iwachu, Iwachu. The high-pitched, unnatural voice repeated itself, getting louder and louder and closer at the same time. At first, Bill couldn't see anything, even though there was a street light about 20 feet ahead of him. The lamp cast a bluish circle of light on the pavement in front of him, and then, in Bill's own words, into the circle walked a hairy creature about three or four feet tall, which probably weighed a hundred pounds based on how it looked. What happened next has been haunting Bill for almost 20 years. He watch you. He watch you. Chew. Chew. He watch you. The creature said repeatedly. It stood straight on two legs and stared at Bill. With eyes that were too large for its own head, like the eyes of an owl. The two friends were paralyzed as they watched the creature, but the creature just stood there and didn't appear to be threatening. Samantha trembled, and then she looked at Bill as if to ask, What is it? Bill looked at the dog and said, It's okay, Sam. In a somewhat unconvincing manner, the creature kept speaking and began to motion to him with its arms, asking him to come closer. The creature wasn't wearing any clothing to speak of and was covered in coarse, unkempt hair and was about five or six inches long. The thing that appeared to have a pot belly as well, and Bill took it to be a young stages of old age. What in the world was he dealing with? Bill had no idea. What was this thing? Possibilities began running through Bill's mind. Perhaps it was just a local kid dressed up for Halloween. Then he realized that this thing couldn't possibly be a toddler, nor was it any animal that he had seen before. Bill had seen beavers, muskrats, foxes, and bears in the Hockmock Swamp, but this creature didn't even remotely look like any of those animals. Bill and Samantha stood there looking at the creature for what seemed like hours, but in reality the encounter itself probably lasted only a few minutes. Although it appeared to be friendly and nothing over-threatening could be detected in its mannerisms, Bill had heard stories from other people about bizarre things that they had seen in the swamps, stories that could neither confirm or deny. Bill was scared, 
The tiny creature was much smaller than he was, and yet he was still very frightened. Worse yet, it was the middle of the night, and the thing was talking to him. But eventually, Bill worked up enough courage and asked the creature a few questions. But the only answer that he received was Iwachu, over and over again. It was at this point that Bill and Samantha made a very big circle around the creature and went home as fast as they could. The two friends didn't look back, not even once. When Bill arrived home after the encounter, he was very shaken up about it. He made a big pot of coffee and kept drinking it throughout the night, one cup after another. That night, he relived the entire experience over and over again in the confines of his living room. He wondered if he should have tried to talk to the creature more or if he should have at least walked up to it. What was it? What did it say? He asked himself, as near as he could figure, it was trying to speak English and was saying, we want you, we want you, come here, come here. Bill took this to mean that there was more than one of these creatures. Needless to say, Bill didn't get much in the way of sleep that night. To this day, almost 20 years later, Bill doesn't really know why the tiny creature wanted him. He has come to believe that he narrowly avoided his own death that night, but he also regrets not having taken action. If I had been Darwin or Dr. Livingston, he recounts, I would have walked to the thing and would have made a great discovery and would have written a new chapter in human history. But it was just, I was just a weak, frightened man who slinked away and lost a chance to catalog an entirely new species. I am ashamed to admit that I walked away. Did Bill encounter a Pukwudgie that night? He believes that he did, and the description of the creature's appearance and behavior all point out that he may have indeed encountered one of these tiny trolls. If one buys into the legends, then Bill was very wise to walk away from the creature. If he hadn't, then it's very possible that the creatures would have made a meal out of Bill and his faithful dog, Samantha who passed away, unfortunately, in 1998. The man also believes as more and more of the Hockmock Swamp is filled, such encounters will become more and more commonplace. Who is to say that Bill isn't right? Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Here's the $10 million question. Did U.S. Special Forces kill a giant in Kandahar? Several conspiracy theory-oriented websites are claiming a biblical giant, much like Goliath, with flaming red hair, was killed by U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. United States Special Forces allegedly killed this giant in Kandahar in 2002, and the government has been trying to cover it up, according to these sources. Several personalities and websites dedicated to discussing supernatural myths and conspiracy theories began claiming in 2016 that an American Special Forces soldier serving in Kandahar, Afghanistan, was killed in 2002 by a 1,100-pound, blade-wielding, 12-foot-tall giant 
equal or equivalent to the Old Testament times before the giant itself was taken down by the military. A Department of Defense spokesperson told them they had no record of such an incident. <clears throat> and I quote, we do not have any record or information about a special forces member killed by a giant in Kandahar. Current interest in the story appears to have been generated from a video created by L.A. Maruzili, an author, blogger, and filmmaker determined to link modern times with biblical creatures and prophecies. On the 13th of August, 2016, he posted an episode on YouTube of his series, Watchers, in which he claims to interview a military contractor or soldier who witnessed the blade-wielding giant on Kandahar. <coughs> kill another soldier before being downed by troops, whisked away by a transport aircraft and hidden away from public view. Marzuli makes the case that the giant was a Nephilim, which were described in the book of Genesis as offspring of gods and human women who inhabited Canaan in the time of the Israelite conquest. But when it comes down to details, he's vague saying he interviewed the unnamed man at an undisclosed location on an unknown date. The interviewee, who he claims shot and killed the giant, doesn't give any details on the location of the alleged incident, other than to say it was a remote location in Afghanistan in 2002. He claims that he and others were sent to look for a missing patrol when they saw a scarlet-haired giant emerge from a cave and skewer one of their friends who he called Dan, with a large blade. In the Army statement, it's sufficient, isn't sufficient. The only service member with the first name Dan, or Daniel, who died in Kandahar in 2002, was killed along with three others in an accident involving the clearing and disposal of explosives. There are no incidents on the Department of Defense press release page in which all military casualties are listed, involving a giant, likewise, there are no reports of an entire patrol disappearing in Afghanistan at that time either. Marzulli's video about the alleged giant incident, replete and growling animation, can be seen on the website provided. Are the giants really among us? Did they ever leave? Where did they go? The Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley. Giant humans called the Nephilim once roamed the earth. The Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels, in the Ohio Valley documents the migration of the counted giants in the Bible, known as the Amorites, to North America. This blog, the Nephilim Chronicles, is dedicated to the historic documents that shows this mysterious chapter in the Bible, and actually that it's true. Fifty giant tombs were just recently discovered on the banks of the Ohio River and believed to be the King's Graveyard, as it was called. Corn Island is located at the southern bend of the Ohio River. It was flooded by the construction of the dam in the 1920s. The other cemetery contains the bones of 50 dead kings, or being referred to as kings. The tombs are made of rough, hewn stone, and the occupants were all men, not one of was less than six and a half to seven feet high. They were buried in sitting posture, and their faces turned toward the rising sun, and their weapons must have been buried with them, evidently placed on their laps, according to reports. But the peculiar coincidence is that the left 
temple of each had been crushed in by some blunt instrument, whether it was as religious rite or a precaution against burying them alive as a matter of surmise. One would surmise that considering the writer who opened one of the graves with Professor Green, the eminent geologist and at one time state geologist of Indiana, believes it was a religious rite. The School of History of Kentucky says when the first white settlers arrived at Louisville, they found piles of human skeletons on Corn Island, and some are found there now. To the early settlers, it appeared that there had been a great battle fought and that one tribe had been entirely wiped out. All of the skeletons were those of people of medium stature, save one, that of a man, and he must have been seven feet tall, according to the reports. On the banks of the falls to this day are found to be found thousands of Indian arrows and spearheads with an occasional battle axe. And once a stone owl was found that had probably been fashioned by one of the prehistoric people at that time. The description represents the concrete facts and is the cooperative evidence of the weird tale told by Mrs. Kelly and her ancestors and their mystic chant of the vanishing of a strange race of people. The story had better be given in her own words to the writer of this narrative. Valentine Kelly, who was a spiritualist, told the writer that he was once standing on a shed near the royal tombs when a gigantic white man with yellow hair peered in at the window. He said he saw him as clear as he could, for it was broad daylight and he could not have made a mistake. However, Mr. Kelly was a firm believer in ghosts and hobgoblins, and it may be that he did not actually see yellow hair, but he believed to be the time of his death. He had seen him. He permitted Professor Green and the writer to open two of the graves on his farm, but stopped further evacuating, excavating, sorry, as he said the scientist would soon dig up the best part of his farm if he permitted them to do so. But there were originally 50 of the tombs, and now more than 40 remain. The high water washed away some of them, and two were opened by men. One of the best-known archaeologists of Indiana, Dr. W.F. Work of Charlestown, Indiana, found seven similar stones 13 miles from the scene, and he noticed that the left temple of each dead man was crushed in, and that the bones of those were men of gigantic stature. Dr. Work spent much time in exploring the habitations of the cliff dwellers of Arizona and was written has written much on the subject. He believes yellow hair people were the Mandan Indians. Orlando Hobbs, also an archaeologist authority of Indiana and a man known widely for his learning and research, holds this opinion as well. The Smithsonian Institute recognized the destruction of thousands of giants. The Institute admitted that it destroyed thousands of giant human skeletons in the early 1900s. 
The U.S. Supreme Court ruled to publish classified documents dated as early as 1900, proving that the organization took part in a major historic cover-up of evidence showing that tens of thousands of giant human remains were found across America and destroyed by orders of high-ranking evidence. The leaders to protect the dominant chronology of human evolution at the time. Suspects from the American Institute of Alternative Archaeology, AIAA, that the Smithsonian Institute destroyed thousands of giant human remains was accepted by the organization in bayonets, which responded by suing AIAA for slander and attempting to harm the reputation of the 168-year-old institute. According to the AIAA, Representative James Charward had new details that came up during the trial when several Smithsonian Institute insiders recognized the existence of documents that allegedly proved the destruction of tens of thousands of human skeletons, ranging from 6 to 12 feet tall, whose existence of traditional archaeology, for various reasons, does not want to recognize. The demonstration of the human hip bone of about one to three meters long as evidence of the existence of such giant human bones, this proof broke a hole in the defense of the institution's lawyers on the slander case as the bone was stolen from the high organization by one of its high-ranking curators in the mid-1930s. He kept the bone throughout his entire life and wrote a confession upon his deathbed that the Smithsonian Institute's cover-up and their operations. He said in his note, it's terrible what they do to people, he writes. We hide the truth about the ancestors of humanity, the giants who inhabited this earth, which are mentioned in Bible texts as well as other ancient texts. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled to publish these classified documents on everything related to the destruction of evidence related to pre-European culture as well as elements related to human skeletons more than usual. The publication of these documents will help archaeologists and historians review modern theories about human evolution and help us understand the pre-European culture of America and the rest of the world, says Gans Gutenberg, director of the AIAA. Historical Chronicles of the 19th century often report findings in different corners of the globe of skeletons of people with abnormally high growth, which brings to mind a situation in the south central Ohio uh, portion of Ohio when they were putting in a new by road that separates between a major highway and a road that connects into the city of Chillicothe, Ohio. When they were digging to make this new road, they found unmarked graves consisting of about six to ten giant humanoid skeletons that were in excess of 12 feet tall apiece. And when they made this discovery, it was quickly shut down. They brought in experts from outside the field, outside of the group that was hired to do the digging and the moving of the land. Local authorities got involved. They were kindly cast aside and told that this was a matter of a different authority. And these bodies were exhumed 
and said they were going into an archaeological find. They were going to do a huge write-up and reveal this to the world. But since then, the road's been put down. It's been years now. People have come and gone. Uh, We have an entirely new uh, sheriff's department because the local authorities were getting involved in trying to blow the lid off of all of this. And that sheriff's no longer with us, nor are his deputies. And the bodies are gone too. But there were several eyewitnesses that saw these bodies themselves. And many of them were forced or cohorsed into signing a NDA with said organization that was going to reveal the findings and protect the integrity of the witnesses. But since then, no one's integrity and no, no one has really had their integrity protected. And those that are willing to come forward have talked to me, explained what they saw, described and have written and sketched out in detail what they saw. And the five people I've spoken with that were present or had seen evidence at that time, uh, they all match up. Uh, same situation along the Ohio River separating Ohio from Kentucky. In the early 1900s, several giant humanoid skeletons were found along the riverbanks and were removed and covered up, never to be seen again. Now, this seems to be going on a lot. And these things are coming out more so during this pandemic in the year 2020. I mean, the Pentagon has now admitted that UFOs have always been here. They've been watching them. There have been encounters with aliens and crafts that are not of this planet. And that hit the mainstream media. But because of all the protests, the riots, the pandemic, the upcoming election, the lunacy that is the Donald Trump administration, and on top of that, any and every other thing possible to be thrown in our direction to divert our attention. What better time to release information this magnificent about our history, about the mysteries of the universe, than now, in the middle of all of this noise that we're surrounded by? It's a good way for someone to slide in the truth completely undetected. Now playing one of the biggest podcasts of the week on the free iHeartRadio app. Now number one for podcasting. This tragic story was, sh- was shared with me from Brian Ellis of Expedition Bigfoot. Richard Stevens, a 13-year-old boy, was killed last Tuesday in Knott County, Kentucky. Brian had been following the stories, trying to stitch together the evidence to make some sense of it all. The boy was staying at relative's house and a familiar, very familiar with the area. He was playing in the backyard and a relative called 911 at 6 p.m., last Tuesday evening, saying the boy was being attacked by a canine-type creature. First responders on the site at 6.30 p.m. They made it after the 911 caller director directed them up the mountain behind the house. They had difficulty getting up the mountainside because of the steep, slick terrain, but found the boy was dead 300 to 400 feet straight up the rain-slick mountain. State troopers reported something is out there, coroner had confirmed that the boy was killed by a canine-type creature, but couldn't identify what it was exactly. 
The latest reports are still listed as canine creature. There have not been any wolves in Kentucky for decades. A full-grown 40-pound coyote couldn't drag a 100-pound dead body up a mountainside. There are no mountain lions in Kentucky. A feral dog or even several feral dogs could not drag a 100-pound dead body up a mountainside, nor could a bear. The coroner has determined the cause of death to be a canine-type creature once again. The funeral was on Friday, and Brian had communicated with the relative to go set up a GoFundMe page, and three different reporters, all at the same time, had said canine creature. The coroner has had ample time to test the DNA. Known animals would be easily identified, but they aren't saying what it was that killed this poor boy. A bear or a mountain lion are the only two animals that Brian knows of that could kill a human and have the strength to drag him up 100 yards up a rain-slick mountainside. But it wasn't a bear or a mountain lion. Coroner said that the canine creature killed him. The authorities are asking neighbors to be hyper-vigilant of their surroundings. If you want more information, Google 13-year-old boy killed by animal attack in Kentucky. The story will most likely fade to black with no official ID of the animal or creature that killed him. Brian has taken the liberty of copying and posting this to reply to the Dogman post. Follow Brian Ellis and Expedition Bigfoot and you will read more about this and you will understand why the Dogman topic might be more important than the possibility of a Bigfoot attack. He claimed to be a serial killer who was actually a werewolf. This was in 1589. Peter Stubay was one of many self-confessed werewolves. In 1589, he claimed that his wolfskin belt allowed him to transform. And he also said he had slain over a dozen victims. In 1685, the mayor became the Wolf of Ensbach. The people of Ansbach were angry and scared at their, that their livestock was attacked by a wolf-type creature. Hans, the werewolf, said he was bitten by a man in black. This was in Estonia in the 17th century. Giles Garnier, the werewolf of Dole. Jacques Roulat, the werewolf of Angers, mutilated a boy in 1598. Two werewolf friends hunted together in 1521. With a long trail of gore behind them, Pierre Burgot and Michael Verdun confessed to being werewolves in 1521. Their deeds were gruesome, as records indicate. They killed a woman who was gathering peas, also seized a little girl of four years old, and ate the palpitation flesh. All saved one arm. The Georgia werewolf, Emily Isabella Burt, terrorized neighbors in the 19th century. This is an American werewolf legend that comes from Georgia. As the story goes, the widowed Mildred Burt lived in a rural part of the country in the mid-19th century. One of her daughters, Emily Isabella Burt, had trouble sleeping at night, and she had extra hair and sharp teeth. Then there was the werewolf of Polotsk. He lived on as a sorcerer and a werewolf. He was a very real, real ruler of Polotsk in what is now known as Belarus, known as Zevlaz, the sorcerer for his rumored magical powers. He was also believed to take the form of a wolf. 
Then there was the beast of Gudavan, who stalked through the 18th century France. The tale of the beast of Gouvandon is one surrounded by mystery and a whole lot of bloodshed. Cannibalism made you a werewolf in ancient Greece. Beliefs differ on what exactly turned someone into a werewolf. In ancient Greece, apparently people believed that someone could be transformed by eating the meat of a wolf and a human mixed together. The story is similar to the tale of King Laekuan. He attempted to trick the god Zeus into eating human flesh. Zeus wasn't pleased with this and turned Laekuan into a wolf as punishment. His name is likely the root of the word lycanthropy. And of course, these are some of the tales and legends that surround us in the world we live in, pertaining to the dogman, werewolves, skinwalkers, other type of bipedal wolf or dog-like creatures. And there's so many more tales that are not just of the ancient world, but of the world we currently live in, like the werewolf of London, Ohio. And that encounter took place in the 1980s. I wrote about this in my book, Haunted Enough. Be sure to check that out if you want to read that tale. It's something that I would assume you'd find quite chilling. Uh, I've been told that it's probably the book itself is one of the scariest books I've ever written. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, good news. The outrageously expensive little blue pill is now generic, which means you can get the prescription medication to treat ED at affordable prices. And Hems makes it extra affordable. You pay just 30 bucks for a month's supply. And right now, get your first online doctor's visit totally free when you go to 4 slash good. That's right, free. Zero copay, no expensive appointments, no awkward face-to-face -face conversations to get your prescription. Hims connects you to doctors online who can evaluate you and, if appropriate, prescribe your ED medication. And a pharmacy sends it right to your door. Hims makes it affordable, private, and incredibly easy. Nobody likes dealing with ED. Now, thanks to Hims, nobody has to. And that's really good news. To start your free online visit, you need to go to this exclusive address, 4 slash good. That's 4 slash good for your free online visit. F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash good. Family is big around here. We're family owned, family operated, family managed. And that means legacy. That means dependability. That means using Granger. With over 1.5 million products and knowledgeable product experts, Granger has whatever we need. And with same day pickup and next day delivery options, they have it whenever we need it. For over 90 years, businesses like ours have trusted Granger. Because, like family, Granger's got our back. Call, clickgranger.com, or stop by to see for yourself. Granger, for the ones who get it done. We assume Bigfoot crossed the road to get to the other side. As the old joke goes, but when the enigmatic hominid, nobody knows for sure. Here's what we do know. On June 22, 2009, at around 6.30 p.m., a 19-year-old college student was driving on a curvy road near Rhinebeck, New York. Now, this was a back road. On the way to a rehearsal at a nearby performing arts center, according to the BFRO report, as he swerved to miss an object on the road, a shopping bag containing, oddly, an open cereal box and a small log. He glanced in his rearview mirror and saw someone or something darting behind his car, apparently to retrieve the bag. A moment later, the student stopped and turned his car around and got 
a three to four second glimpse of something walking on two feet about 50 feet away. He described the creature which he saw from the rear and side profile as being between seven to seven and a half feet. Covered with black hair and possessing broad muscular shoulders with arms that swung in an exaggerated fashion and palms that faced upwards, the witness recalled that he felt nervous, confused, and excited at the same time during his brief encounter. At about 1.30 on the morning of January 8th in 2008, a Big rig driver was hauling a load of Idaho potatoes on US I-15 near the town of Skiripio, just outside of St. George, Utah. As he downshifted and headed down an incline, the fog grew increasingly heavy. The driver noticed something by the side of the road with glowing eyes and thought it might be a deer. When he switched on his high beams, he was startled to see a gigantic creature running across the road from left to right on long strides, just 20 feet or so away. According to an interview with the BFRO investigator, he later estimated based on a comparison of his truck and factoring on the distance that the creature was at least 10 feet tall and between six to 800 pounds. It had black hair and big eyebrows and long lanky arms that were proportionally longer than a human's. For a moment, it turned its head and stared at the rapidly approaching truck. The driver swerved hard to the middle of the freeway to avoid hitting the creature, which nearly caused the truck to crash. Fortunately, he regained control of the vehicle, but he managed to roll to a stop two to three hundred yards away and looked back. The mysterious figure was gone. The driver an avid outdoorsman and hunter told the BFRO investigator that he'd always been skeptical about the existence of Bigfoot, but after actually seeing one in the flesh, he changed his mind. His opinion was forever changed. It scared the hell out of me, he admitted. Another such instance, it was about a quarter past six on the morning of September 1st, 2009. A woman commuting to a job in Riffle, Colorado, was feeling a little groggy on her way to work, despite her usual cup of takeout coffee. Just before she started up through Independence Pass, she decided to pull her truck over to the side of the road and get a little fresh air. As she got out of the truck, she noticed some movement in the meadow directly ahead of her. At first, she thought it might be a bear, but when the creature stood up, she saw that it had arms that hung to its side just like a person. The creature was huge and had a cinnamon-colored style fur. She told Bifro, BFRO, the investigator, and after some coaxing on the part of the investigator, she also revealed that it had an additional anatomical feature, a pair of large breasts. Prior to the encounter, she witnessed the, uh, admitted that she had always poo-pooed the possibility of such creatures existing, but said, my life is forever changed. At around dusk, On August 29, 2011, a woman was outside her house with a litter of whippet puppies who were going potty when she heard a whistling sound 
the sort that she makes when she's trying to get the attention of her dogs, thinking that it might be another one of her pets, a parrot perhaps. She did a few back-and-forth whistles with the source, then one of her adult dogs, an Australian shepherd, woofed and barked wildly, and she heard a loud rustle in the nearby forest. She looked up to see a tall, hairy creature. It was an estimated eight to nine feet tall, and when it saw her, it let go of the tree branch it was holding down with, and it stepped back into the trees and disappeared. The investigator with BFRO who interviewed the witness noticed that she was a former deer hunter and experienced in the outdoors, and thus unlikely to have mistaken the creature for another large animal, I'm sure that Bigfoot's curiosity would be heightened by a new woman living in the previously unoccupied house and a litter full of whippet puppies, he concluded. On October 23, 2010, at about 7.15 a.m., a deer hunter parked his all-terrain vehicle on a trail and quietly slipped into the still-darkened woods. He hoped to make it to his favorite clearing without spooking any deer in the area. As he was walking, he noticed a very large animal walking about 10 yards ahead of the trail. Oddly, while it didn't appear to be running, the animal seemed to cover about 15 to 20 feet. In just two strides, it made no noticeable noise. The hunter clicked on his flashlight. What I saw made my hair stand on end, he wrote in his report on the BFRO website. The creature was between seven and seven and a half feet tall, and he estimated that it weighed around 500 pounds. It was muscular and covered with dark fur, with long arms and slightly hunched posture. I have seen a few bears, and I know positively that it was not a bear, he explained in his report. The creature quickly moved down a hillside and was gone after a few seconds. It all happened so quickly that he never even thought of using the digital camera he had with him. I used to think that Sasquatch couldn't exist because we would have seen it already, and if I saw it, there'd be tons of pictures, he admitted. But now I can see why that isn't true. You're usually startled by that point upon noticing it, and it's too late. In the swamps of Florida, Bigfoot is known by a different name, the skunk ape, an apparent reference to the appalling smell that the creature supposedly exudes, according to the BBC. The stinky creature may have been spotted on May morning of 2011. According to the report on the BFRO website, a fishing guide was using a pole to propel a flatboat in a mangrove swamp when he and his two clients, a commercial pilot and an attorney, spotted something on the shore about 100 yards away. At first, the guide thought the creature might be a feral hog or possibly a bear. But as the boat got closer, the creature, which apparently had been rooting through the sand or fish for fish or crustaceans to eat, turned and stood up to look directly at them. The guide estimated the apparent skunk ape was as wide as a side-by-side refrigerator freezer with a muscular torso, a ZZ top-looking beard, and a hairless forehead. The creature stared at them for about 15 seconds and then made a guttural moan and a sort of a snort and walked away into the mangroves. And this next one, based on uh, the stories that have been shared with me from my listeners and people who follow my channel. 
On July 2009, a worker was returning home from a deck building job at about 6 p.m. As he drove through a wooded area near houses and a school, he noticed what first appeared to be a man standing on the side of the road. As the car got closer, however, the man suddenly bolted into the woods like a wild animal spooked by human presence. The driver slowed down and watched the creature run about 30 yards and then make a turn, which enabled the driver to get a better look at him. Unlike other reports that depict Bigfoot as gigantic, the driver reported that the creature was about 6 feet high, maybe 200 pounds. He said the creature was covered in shaggy, rust-colored fur and ran with a strange, hoppy, bounding motion. It was either real or there was a man in a very, very convincing costume, the witness reported to the BFRO website. Another one, on October 25, 2010, a man was watching a movie at about 1 a.m. when he heard a noise outside his house. This sounded like a long blast from a car horn or a police siren. He hit the mute on his TV and realized that the sound was more like a howl or an injured animal. He assumed that it was a bear or a mountain lion. The next evening, a friend came to pick him up to drive to a casino at about 8 p.m. The two men had driven about four miles when they both heard the noise once again. They slowed down and the noise stopped. They resumed driving and then suddenly had to swerve to avoid a car ahead of them and had abruptly stopped. It was then that the two gamblers spotted what appeared to be a man-like creature at least 10 feet tall, covered in dark brown and black fur, with eyes that glowed from the reflection of their headlights. Human eyes don't do that, the witness explained in his report. After 20 to 30 seconds, the creature walked off with a fluid gait and definitely was not human, and the two men quickly drove off in fear. They came home that evening by a different route to avoid another encounter, and the witnesses are now true believers. They describe themselves as being. They believe in Bigfoot, but added, if it's Bigfoot or not, I don't want that coming around my house, nor do I want to encounter it again. This one from September 8, 2007 happened between 8.30 and 9 p.m. A local law enforcement officer was driving to answer an alarm call on a ranch when he noticed someone or something coming up out of the ravine onto the side of the road. I thought to myself that I might have surprised someone who might have been growing marijuana in the woods or something like that, the officer reported to the BFRO website. But when he hit the brakes and quickly backed up, the headlights illuminated what he described as a creature about seven to eight feet tall, covered with thick brown matted fur, and walked upright. It had leaves and grass matted into its fur on the back, and it had been lying down at one point and was moving very slowly. The creature turned away from the officer and returned to the overgrowth, pushing aside small tree limbs and to clear its path. It was visible for only a few seconds, but he could hear the crunching noise and its movements for a bit longer. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, the officer wrote. It was definitely something... I was not going to put out on the radio. And last but not least, this was submitted to me this week, as a matter of fact. You would think that a feral ape-like creature would tread lightly around humans who are equipped to respond to a, a sighting with a hail of bullets. Surprisingly, though, Bigfoot seems oblivious to our puny human weaponry. 
as a Blackstone VA man, Virginia, and his son discovered in the early morning hours of May 3rd, 2011, when the two heard a loud noise outside their home. The man grabbed his pistol and the son picked up his shotgun, and they were outside to investigate, figuring that they would encounter either a burglar or a bear. Instead, the man reported on the BFRO website they, conf- they were confronted by an eight-foot-tall, hair-covered humanoid creature running toward them from the nearby woods. The man screamed at the creature to stop and told his son to shoot, which he did, into the air. The creature shrieked but continued running toward them, getting to within 15 feet before the pair retreated back to their house. I was in terror, the man wrote. He recalled that evening that the pervasive odor that really stunk from the Bigfoot and left footprints that were 8 to 20 inches. An investigator who visited the man's farm and interviewed him documented a series of other unusual incidences, including loud wails and slaps in the side of the house at night, suggesting that Bigfoot had paid him repeat visits. Could it be a warning? Could it be him hunting man instead of man hunting for Bigfoot? The world may never know, and hopefully that encounter does not turn south. Please hold for an important message from our sponsor. The time that U.S. troops believed that they saw Bigfoot in the jungles of Vietnam, in the Kantum province of Vietnam, near the borders with Laos and Cambodia, there were many reports from the U.S. troops on patrols of a strange, not quite human, but not quite ape creature, the locals called Nagao Rung, or the people of the forest. In other words, we know him as Bigfoot. Gary Linderer was on a six-man patrol with the 101st Airborne Long Range Reconnaissance Patrols. While struggling through the underbrush, he ran into a deep set of eyes on a prominent brow, five feet tall, with long muscular arms. The creature walked upright and was then much taller than five feet. He had broad shoulders and a heavy torso. His battle buddies told him he just saw a rock ape, but Lindwer had seen rock apes before. This was no rock ape. Once it stood completely tall, it was about an excess of seven feet. Like the Yeti in the Himalayas and the Sasquatch sightings all over North America, the Nagual Rung is an often told tale in this area. But despite endless sightings and folklore attached to the semi-mythical creature, no concrete evidence exists. Linderer wasn't the only witness either. Army Sergeant Thomas Jenkins reported his platoon was attacked by these apes throwing stones at them. Toward the end of the war, Viet Cong and NVA soldiers reported so many sightings of the reddish-brown-haired-covered Nagao Rong. The North Vietnamese Communist Party ordered scientists to investigate the sightings. Dr. Vo Quy, a respected doctor and environmental researcher from Hanoi, discovered the Nagao Rong footprint on the forest floor and made a cast of it. The cast was wider than a human foot and too big for an ape and much too long for a human. In 1982, another Vietnamese scientist, Tran Hong, Viet discovered more footprints, which led zoologist 
John McKinnon to investigate the region. McKinnon called the area a tiny, pristine corner of the world unknown to modern science. In 1969, McKinnon discovered man-like footprints in Borino's jungles, with the locals called Batutut, while much of the evidence surrounding the existence of these apes is only through theory alone. McKinnon, known for his discoveries of new mammal species in Vietnam, believes that there is a possibility the existence of a previously unknown ape species is very much real. The account of Nagai Rong meeting American GIs in Vietnam was first published in Craig P.J. Jordanson's Very Crazy GI But Strange True Stories of the Vietnam War. I've been a diehard Bigfoot enthusiast since I was a kid. There were these documentaries that were made in the 1970s. Raymond Burr hosted them. And George C. Scott did a couple as well as Leonard Nimoy. They pertain to Bigfoot sightings, eyewitness accounts, uh, dramatizations, reenactments of these said sightings. Uh, also, the documentaries they did related to the Bermuda Triangle, UFO sightings, ghostly encounters, the ghosts of Gettysburg. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, I was very young when these came out. Um, it, it drew me in right away. And when I was about eight, I set out on my own hiking slash camping adventure looking for Bigfoot in the Gooseneck Mountains of my grandmother's property that was in between Beaver and Piketon, Ohio, on the back 40 Podunk. Uh, if you're not at all familiar with that, if you've heard of BFE, it's just south of that. It is literally over the river and through the woods and up the hill and down the mountain. It's way off the beaten path. I don't think any cell phone company gets service out there. But when I was a kid, cell phones didn't exist. We just had walkie-talkies, two-way radios, whatnot, CB radios. And I went off for what was going to be an overnight stay. I was going to camp out in the woods and look for Bigfoot. Lo and behold, it took me a few hours before I got bored and came home because instead of finding Bigfoot, I, in fact, discovered um, a deer carcass a beehive where I almost got stung by bees, and a cave where something was snarling and growling from the inside. Um, chances are it was either a bear or a bobcat. But when I heard that, I decided to head back home. It was around 5 p.m. on a Saturday when I returned to my grandma's house, empty-handed but not losing the faith and finding Bigfoot one day, and in fact, a promise I've made to myself as well as those who know me, if I were to ever find Bigfoot, and we locked eyes, and we communicated in one way, shape, or form, um, it, it would be an honor to set my eyes upon such a magnificent creature, whether it be a, a humanoid or whatever his species would be, or its species would be considered, uh, in reference to Bigfoot, I don't want to refer to the female Bigfoot as he. I would never tell anyone where I discovered it, where I found Bigfoot. I, I would be afraid that these gun nut hunters would run into the woods, firing at anything that moves and disrupting the habitat of the Sasquatch that I found. And that would just break my heart because they are literally an endangered species. In fact, the government has already acknowledged that these things exist. And since the 1960s, 
they have put in the certain states have put in their states register as well as their almanacs uh, certain species that you will encounter certain types of animals you will encounter uh, while camping in the wilderness while hiking the woods while going and exploring the mountains rock climbing repelling what have you they always especially in the pacific northwest always have Bigfoot mentioned in their state almanacs or in their state registers of animals that you will encounter, creatures you will encounter. In fact, um, the state of Washington has Sasquatch as one of their, on the endangered species list, as well as one of their natural um, living creatures that reside within the area. And I know Tennessee also has something pertaining to that. And the list goes on with weird things the government has already acknowledged. For example, uh, UFO sightings, aliens, uh, fire marshal handbooks or fire department handbooks uh, in regards to like natural disasters or some sort of pandemic in relationship to alien encounters or a crashed UFO or first contact. There's actually steps that they are required to follow and train for if they do in fact encounter this type of phenomenon. So we've been preparing for it for a long time. It's just not really public knowledge. And it makes sense if you go all the way back to War of the Worlds when it was done in the format of a radio broadcast and everything was done with voice and sound effects before television existed, really. And this was all done on the radio. People heard this recording and thought for certain that we were under an invasion at that point in time. And there were people literally, actually people committing suicide as a result of the fear that they felt from the possibility that their loved ones were going to die due to this alien invasion that was unfolding in this radio broadcast and this, this dramatization. And so many people, by the hundreds, maybe by the thousands, thought this was a legit event that was happening. It was unfolding. And these secrets that are kept from us from the upper echelon by the upper echelon from us it, it makes sense if you think about it because the general population as a whole a majority of people are not prepared to handle such a change to our culture to our society to our civilization as an invasion or an arrival for that matter the people of the world are not prepared to handle it and especially with within the United States, we are full of gun nuts in this country. Now, owning a gun is one thing. I'm cool with guns. I know how to handle them. I know how to dismantle them, reassemble them, clean them, name it. I can fire them. I can shoot them well. But when dudes are going out at gun shows and acquiring AR-15s and AK-47s without so much as a background check, they themselves could also have some sort of a blemish in their background for domestic violence or for assault charges or for some sort of mental illness. And they're able to acquire firearms with such a weapon of mass destruction. These killing machines they can acquire by the truckloads without a proper background check, without the waiting period that should be required when purchasing such a weapon. And there was a time when the government outlawed semi-automatic weapons. In fact, it was the Republicans who called for the banning of semi-automatic weapons. But now we have this new superpower that's running 
the boat and steering it directly into the rocks. And they're like, oh no, bump stocks are cool. That just turns your semi-automatic weapon into a fully automatic weapon. Why not? Because the NRA is lacing their pockets and funneling so much money into the GOP that they're bought and paid for by them. So of course they're going to kowtow to that. The NRA in that aspect, they're acting like a bunch of thugs, like the Teamsters, when they were bullying people into unions and doing dirty deeds behind closed doors to manipulate the money that was being paid into said unions. There's got to be a ceiling here where eventually they bump their heads and it's like, okay, this is where it stops. Have we not reached that point yet? An invasion or an arrival from some alien species would cause these lunatics that are acquiring these killing machines, these weapons of mass destruction, to essentially start an interstellar war because they would run out to the yards of their homes or their buddies' houses, get lit up on moonshine, and start firing at whatever they saw in the sky. And their weapons are far more advanced than ours. So all it would do is just piss them off, and then it would cause us to become completely vaporized. It's just a key point to think about. We're really, as a civilization, not prepared for the truth, not equipped to handle it. It would change everything about what we know and what modern science has taught us and what known science can comprehend. Werewolves, werewolves, werewolves. Where are they? Where do they come from? What do they want? This is so much more than just Hollywood fandom folklore horror and what fun nonsense it is, actually. 11 historical werewolves that terrorized villages around the world. You might think of werewolf stories as something only told for fun around campfires, but that hasn't always been the case. Historically, many slayings, crimes, and generally horrific incidences have been attributed to werewolves. People truly believed in the existence of these creatures. In fact, in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe, werewolf trials accompanied witch trials, and sometimes they were even one and the same. It's even more surprising to note the number of people who confess to being werewolves or lycanthropes. Some were likely tortured into confession, but others believed themselves to be real werewolves. The idea that someone could transform into an animal was a popular one, and people thought they could make a deal with the devil in order to obtain that power. Is there any truth behind enduring the legend of the werewolf? Or were these creatures just convenient scapegoats for mysterious misdeeds? Whatever you think, there's no denying that these historical encounters with werewolves are fascinating and downright spooky. Now, for example, the werewolf of Chalons cooked his victims for dinner in the 1500s. In the 1500s, a French tailor was convicted of luring in, torturing, and slaying his victims before cooking and eating them for supper. Another good example is Peter Stube. Well, that's it for today. See you next time on Paranormally Speaking. I'm Neil Parks, your host, award-winning author, paranormal enthusiast,